try it again. Good morning. My name is Ricardo, one of the pastors here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. We're so glad you guys decided to join us this morning as we worship our Lord and Savior through the preaching of his word, through the singing of and praises to him and through prayer. So glad you guys are here. I pray that you guys had a blessed Thanksgiving, that it was filled with good food and good fellowship with your family, that it was a blessed time. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who reached out to me last week, who prayed for me last week um, as I was up at Steelton. Is it better now? Check. I can hear myself. Can you guys hear me? All right, there we go. I just want to say thank you. People reached out to me. They prayed for me as I was bringing God's word at Steelton, and I just want to say thank you for that. It was a blessed time. I'm excited for what they're doing over there in Steelton. But I am glad to be back. I am glad to be opening up God's word with you guys this morning. If you're with us over the past several weeks, we've just been in the book of Mark, and we're going to stay in the book of Mark this week. This is about our 10th or 11th week in the book of Mark, and so we're excited for what God has been teaching us and growing through us through our study in the book of Mark. And we're in the middle here in the book of Mark of a section throughout chapter 2 where we see that Jesus has these five controversies or, or five interactions with the religious leaders of the time. And it started back at the beginning of chapter 2, and it will end in chapter 3, verse 6. And this is these five sections where the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, kind of come up to Jesus and question him on some things. We see that they first question him on his authority. We see all that at the beginning of chapter 2 when Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then they said, Well, who is he to forgive sins? Only God alone can forgive sins. And then last week we were in a second controversy, if you will, as they were questioning Jesus around those who he chose to associate with. And so we're going to continue our time in chapter 2 by looking at that third controversy, which is, them surrounding Jesus, asking him why him and his disciples aren't fasting. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And the main idea for you guys, if there's anything I want you to leave with today, is this idea that Jesus Christ's coming, him coming to earth, replaces the old system with the new. Jesus Christ's coming replaces the old system with the new. Let's get started. I'm going to be reading out of Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worse tears made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, beholding who you are, that you are a mighty and powerful God, that you are sovereign over everything, that you are the creator of everything, Father. You are the God who speaks and stars 
come from his mouth. The God who tells the oceans where to stop. The God who told the mountains where to be, Father. You are a great and holy God, Lord. And we come before you today, ask that you bless our time together, Father. Thanking you for this opportunity to gather today, to get out of the elements, to be able to sit in these chairs, get away from the cold and just spend time singing praise to you, praying to you, and opening up your word, Father. We understand that is a blessing that many other Christians around this world do not have, Father. And we do not want to take that for granted. So we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We ask that you bless our time together. We ask that you bless the children's time together as, as they will be going through their story, Father. May, may they be attentive. May they learn. May the Lord bless that time. We ask that you bless this time, Lord. Help me to remember all that you put on my heart, Father. May I speak go boldly. May I be precise in what I say. And may you be magnified and glorified today, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be edifying to you and to your people, Father. We pray all this in the Son of, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, the first point today, first of two points, is that we must, we must guard our hearts against the delusion of our own righteous living. We must guard our hearts against the delusion of our own righteous living. Today's text comes on the verge of of the disciples, of, these, of John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, seeing Jesus having a great feast, if you will, as we, as we learned about last week with Levi and Jesus calling Levi, and they go into his house, and he's having food with tax collectors and sinners. And, and I believe these, these new characters we have today, they see this, and out of that, out of observing Jesus having this feast, if you will, they decide to question him and ask, why aren't your disciples fasting? And so we're introduced to, to really two new characters today in our text. It's John's disciples being John the Baptist. These are his disciples and then the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, typically Pharisees didn't have disciples. They were just a religious sect. They were just people who chose to live a certain way, wanted to be separated. That's literally what that word Pharisee means. But they didn't have disciples in, in the sense that we tend to think. Of, of disciples, of, of people being under them and studying under them. So these are just people who probably were amused or entertained by the idea of what the Pharisees were choosing to live like, who saw their ideas, who saw the way they, they lived and wanted to replicate that. That's probably what we see here by it says the disciples of the Pharisees. They weren't real disciples in the sense of Jesus' disciples or disciples of John. These are just people who looked and saw and we're interested in what was going on through the Pharisees. And if we know anything about Pharisees, it's this, they like to put this emphasis on religious practice, on living out certain things, if you will. Not necessarily on the heart, but these are things you have to do. They really focus on the external formalities more than on the heart of the situation. They were more concerned with upholding the law than anything else. And we're not told why these two groups are fasting. Simply put, they are fasting. Some, some commentators believe that John's disciples are fasting because it is they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. Or perhaps in the story timeline, this is after John the Baptist has been 
arrested or after he's been killed, and so this is why they're fasting. We're not told why. We're just simply told that they are fasting. But if we know anything of the Pharisees, this most likely is one of those times of, that they added on to the law. We see this in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, where the Pharisee is in the temple and he's praying to God, saying, God, thank you, I'm not like that. I fast twice a week. I give my, pay my alms. I give my tithes. I'm not like that tax collector over there. So from that text, we can see that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Typically, it was on the second and fifth day, or that would be Mondays or Thursdays. And most likely, this is when the Pharisees fasted. But this wasn't anything that was prescribed by the Bible. This was added by the Pharisees. There's really only one, we see in the New Testament, there's only one biblical, biblically speaking, there's only one day that was mandated to fast in the Old Testament, and that is the Day of Atonement. That is when the priests would go, the high priest would go into the temple, perform his rituals, and seek the atonement for the sins of the people. That's really the only day of fasting that we see talked about in the New Testament that we see occur in the Old Testament. Now, people fasted for for several different reasons, but there wasn't no really one day that you had to fast. We see that Moses fasted for 40 days as he was preparing to go up to Mount Sinai. People often fasted because they were having times of grief. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 13. Daniel fasted in Daniel 9 and 10 as he's getting ready to interpret these dreams. People often fasted because they were seeking God's favor. We see that in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 through 23. David does this as he's mourning his son's illness in 2 Samuel 12. As he's finished and he's hoping that his son will be saved, he's decided to fast. Your kids are learning about Mordecai and Esther, and we'll see that they told the nation of Israel to fast while they were in exile, to seek God's protection, to have his safety over them. People fasted for different reasons, but there was no mandated fast like we see on the Day of Atonement. That's really the only one that we see throughout the Bibles. But we see here that the Pharisees and John's disciples, they're fasting And I say all that to say that they're probably fasting on one of these two days that I mentioned. And it's really just for them to feel better about themselves. This isn't something that the Lord commanded of them. It's they were doing this so that they can be separated, so they can feel holier than the rest of the people. That was their whole reason and purpose for doing these two fasts that we read about in Luke chapter 18. And so they most likely are fasting on one of these two extra biblical practices, if you will. It's, a, it's for their own personal self-righteous reason that they're fasting, not out of any love or, or devotion to God. It's because they want it to feel better about themselves. And so they're, they're, they're living in this delusion that if I do this, all will be right. If I do this, I'm definitely better than the next person. And they're living in their own lie. They wanted to look better, their man, and they're missing the fact that the Messiah is right there in front of them. And so they took notice, as we see in verse 18, that Jesus wasn't fasting, that his disciples weren't fasting. And they asked Jesus, why? Why are they not fasting? And Jesus' answer could really be summed up 
in a couple words. He simply says, this isn't the time to fast. He goes on in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus doesn't simply answer the question. He, he essentially flips the question. He's asking them, why are you fasting? This isn't a time to fast. This is a time to rejoice. That's what weddings were known for. And like I said earlier, as fastings, they typically happen when people were mourning, when people were repenting. They had certain reasons. And Jesus is saying, you're so caught up in your own delusion of righteous living, what you think is the way to live, that you're missing the bigger picture. The Messiah is here. I am with them. The one who has been promised all throughout the Old Testament, the one who the prophets spoke about is finally here and you're worried about your own righteous standards by which you think is the right way to live. And so don't miss the point here. When Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, he is to some extent pointing to his divinity. There is really nowhere in the Old Testament where you see the prophets talk about the Messiah as the bridegroom. That distinction is left for God. Not for the Messiah, but for God. And we see that in Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Suddenly, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm God. I am the son of God. He is here. The Messiah has come. And you're missing the whole point. This is right on par with what Mark has been doing all throughout the book of Mark, just pointing to as his audience that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God. And Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying there suddenly to, to the prophets and to the, to the Pharisees and everyone asking him. He says, does the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? We all know, we've all hopefully been to weddings, and they've been joyous times. They've been happy times, times that we celebrate. I hope you haven't been to a wedding where that didn't happen. I was a part of one wedding at one point where it was very, very subtle that the, the groom's family did not like the bride. They made it known. They weren't happy. There was no smiling. In fact, they decided they were going to the whole the groom's party decided they were going to sit on the dance floor and kind of just make side comments as everyone is trying to have a good time. And it made for a really awkward celebration. And that's what we see here. Jesus saying this time, this isn't a time to mourn. This is like if, if there is a wedding going on and the bridegroom is here, we are to rejoice, we are to celebrate, we are to have joy on this time. During Israel, they, the weddings lasted seven days. So trust me, no one wanted to be fasting during that time. As a matter of fact, the rabbis actually forbid fasting during times of celebration, during times that were supposed to be joyous. And so Jesus is saying, but, but you, during this joyous time, decide you're going to fast. Saying, I'm the Messiah. The time is now for us to rejoice and be glad in all that God was doing. 
They're missing the picture. They're, they're hearing about, they're seeing all the miracles be performed by Jesus. And they're more concerned with their own standards than praising God. And then Jesus also replies in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus doesn't put an end to fasting. He doesn't say you don't have to fast anymore. He's just saying the time is not now. We know that. We know that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus tells us how to fast. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. It's the complete opposite of what the Pharisees are doing here. Jesus says, don't let anyone else know you're fasting. The Pharisees want people to know they are fasting. Jesus says, keep it a secret. The Pharisees are out there letting it known. We're fasting. They were so caught up in their own religious living, their own rituals, their own tradition, that they're missing what God is doing. As I said, they were seeing miracles. Paralytics were getting up and walking. Let people with leprosy were being healed. And yet they see this. And as we read in Mark 3, 20, chapter 3, verse 22, they decide to attribute this to Satan instead of to God. They see Jesus performing these miracles. They see him healing people. And they said, that must be of Satan. They're, they're refusing to accept the fact. They're so caught up in their own way of living that they can't even see what God is doing at the time. They rather attribute it to Satan than, than say, maybe it's time for us to check ourselves. Maybe it's time for us to change things a bit. They were so worried with keeping the law, that they were missing their opportunity to be freed from it. Can the same be told of us? How many times have we missed on God's wonderful mercy and grace because we're so caught up with our own religious delusion that we are doing something for ourselves rather than giving it up to God? How often do we miss on his grace because of standards that perhaps we put on ourselves or, or because of someone put on us, but not any standard that God has put on us? We're told in Lamentations 3.23 that his mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning. And if we don't give our lives to him and get rid of all those extra things that we bring to the table, we miss out on what it means to experience that each and every day that God's mercies are new, that his grace endures, that no matter what you think you did, it's never greater than God's mercy and grace for your life. How many times do we miss on having unity within the body because of non-essentials in the faith? How many times do we miss on unity and fellowship with one another because of things that we think are important, where, where perhaps there is liberty and we decide we want to draw a line in the sand? We have to watch ourselves and guard our hearts against our own delusion of what we believe is righteous or what we believe is religious and give it up and understand that Jesus has brought a new way of life. 
He has given us a new heart where we can give those things up and experience salvation, experience freedom in Christ, in Christ alone. Oftentimes, are we, do we more resemble the Pharisees than anyone else in, in our lives? A second point. Jesus came to replace the old religious system with the new way of life. Jesus came to replace the old religious system with a new way of life. He's ushering in this new age where we no longer have to rely on our own capabilities. We don't have to depend on whether we get up every morning and do what we think is necessary for our faith. But we just have to rely on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And once we do that, it's a new heart and a new relationship. We see this. He's saying, I have come to replace the old with the new. And then the last two analogies that he gives us in verse 21 and 22. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Before we move on, this idea that I'm saying that Jesus comes to replace the old with the new. Talking about anything that was extra biblical, anything that was added on to the gospel. I'm referring to the old religious Jewish system of the time of when Jesus was around. I'm not not talking about God's holy law. I'm not talking about the Old Testament. I'm talking about those 613 laws that the Pharisees added to the gospel. Those, that's what I'm talking about. The 365 of those which were negative, things that you were to abstain from. Then 248 of those were things that you were to perform. That's what Jesus is coming down to tear down. That's what he's coming to replace. It's the old pharisaical religious system of the time. Not the Old Testament, not God's holy laws, but everything that's been added. And so he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. This idea of if you have a favorite bread sheet or if you have a favorite piece of clothing that rips and you decide you're going to take a new piece of cloth and try to sew it on there to repair the tear. And you don't take that, you don't wash that new piece of cloth. You just fresh out of the box. You put it on, you sew it together. And the first time that you run that through the wash, it's going to shrink and it's going to rip, and it's going to tear, and it's going to rip. And what Jesus says here, the tear is now worse. He's saying the old cannot be mixed with the new. The old unshrunk cloth, the way that the Pharisees were living, those rituals, that can't be combined with the new way of life that I am bringing. You must avail yourself from all of that. Notice he says that the tear is worse. If, he's saying if you try to combine what I bring with the old, you're going to be worse off than you are just simply leaving it the old way and staying in the old way. He says you cannot combine the old with the new. You're better off just following your old ways and trying to morph the two into one. You see, it's either all about Jesus or nothing. There is no halfway. You don't have one foot in the door and then one foot out the door. He is either Lord over all or he's Lord over nothing in your life. There is no halfway point with Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. You cannot mix the two. 
And if that didn't get the point across, he uses another analogy, referring to the old wineskin. Usually what they did is this wineskin was made from animal skin. It was made from the goat. And they would try to, you know, once they killed the goat, they'll try to get as much of the, the hide of the, of the skin of the goat and tear it down as one big piece, as much as they could, and then they will sew it together. And the end product is this pouch-looking thing. And inside that, they'll put the wine, and they'll allow the wine to ferment. And so what's happening is gases are expanding. They're being released. And so that wine skin is getting stretched and stretched and stretched. And then they were able, after a couple months, have the wine. And then if they were to put new wine into that old used wine skin, the same thing is going to happen. Eventually what's going to happen, it's going to just get so old, it's going to get so filled and, and tear up. And Jesus says here, you're gonna, the wine is going to fall and you're going to lose all your wine and then you're out of old wine skin. Same thing, you cannot mix the old with the new. If you try to mix with the, the old, with the new that Jesus brings, then you don't have Jesus. It's that simple. You can't keep your old way of living, your old lifestyle, that was counter to the way that God is calling you to live. You can't keep that and call yourself a Christian. You have to be willing to give it all up. He says the new wineskin is for new the new wine is for fresh wineskins. You must be willing to give your old. Jesus did not come to mix things. He didn't come to preserve the old way of life. He came to get rid of it. He came to abolish it. And if you try to if you try to bring the two together as Paul says in Galatians 5:4, then what you've done is you severed yourself from Christ. If you look to be justified by anything else outside of Christ, then you are essentially renouncing God's grace because then you are no longer relying on it. You're relying on something that you think you can bring to the table. The old wineskin cannot, cannot be mixed with the new. It will burst. The new way of life that Jesus brings cannot be mixed with the old or else it will burst. This is why Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 3 says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This idea you have to be born again. You have to have this new fresh wineskin, if you will, to be in this relationship with God. What does he bring, this new way of life? He brings salvation. He brings the forgiveness of sins by grace alone through faith alone. That is the new way that Jesus is bringing. We no longer have to rely on anything else, on a priest to go and, and perform sacrifices on our behalf. We can come on our own and pray fall to our knees and repent and confess of our sins and turn away from them. That's the new way that Jesus is bringing. And it cannot, it cannot, cannot be mixed with any old way of life. It cannot be compromised. You must be willing to give it all up for this new life that is offered in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this so much in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain if he loses his whole self? You have to be willing. Be willing to lose your life. Be willing to give up the familiar ways that you're used to. The comfortable ways that you're used to. To follow Jesus. That's something that the Pharisees were not willing to do. They weren't willing to give up what they were familiar with. They weren't willing to give up the comfortable to follow Jesus. And that's what the call is. John MacArthur writes about this new way of life that Jesus brings. He says, They, the Pharisees, were into self-righteousness. He, Jesus, preached grace. They were into denying that they were sinful. He preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religious odyssey. He preached humility. They were into external ceremony. He preached a transformed heart. They held tightly to the old. He offered the new. They loved the approval of man. He offered the approval of God. They had ritual. He offered relationship. That's the new life. That's the new way that Jesus brings And that can't be mixed with the old. He comes to introduce a new way of life, not something that needs to be patched up, not something that was old, but something new. And that is what salvation is all about. He destroys the old, but he essentially fulfills the law as well. And that is why he's able to come and say these things, to bring the old and get rid of it and abolish it and bring in the new. So we must guard our hearts against this idea that we have it figured out, that we can add things and that we can save ourselves by doing, checking off things off our own personal checklist. We have to be willing to give it all up for the new that Jesus is bringing. As I close, I would like to just talk to those people here or listen who maybe don't know or don't know the Lord as the Lord and Savior, or maybe you're confused and you're not sure what's happening. And as we talked about the last several weeks of Jesus, of Jesus coming, the God of this Bible coming and physically healing people, of making people who were paralyzed walk, of healing people from sickness, of delivering people from being oppressed, that same God comes to bring, to replace the old and bring the new. To save us. That same God who can save people physically also saves us spiritually. We have to understand that we have all sinned. We all, every single one of us, myself and the leaders here, everyone sitting here, we are in need of a Savior. And that's what Jesus comes, that's what he offers, that's what he brings. We have to understand that we are wretched people, that we are all sinners Solomon, the most wisest man who ever lived, in Ecclesiastes 7.22 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is not anyone who can walk this earth and says, I am good. I have never sinned. Paul echoes those words in Romans 3.23 when he says, For all have sinned, all mankind, every single person who's ever walked has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are in need of a Savior. You are in need of a Savior today. You may think you are a good person. Even the Pharisees thought that. But we understand that we are in need 
of a Savior, that even though you may feel good about yourself, even though maybe compared to the people at your job, maybe compared to the person next to you, maybe compared to your neighbors, you are a good person. But as it says in Isaiah 64, 6, that even our good deeds are as filthy rags compared to God, that our God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, is so holy and so righteous that even on your best days, that does not compare to his holiness, to his goodness. And that is why we are in need of a savior. And we can sit here and say that that's exactly why Jesus came, to save the lost. He says so much in Luke 19, 10, that he has come to seek and save the lost. The only begotten son, Jesus came to this earth, lived the life that you couldn't, followed all of God's commands, followed all of the law down to the T, never looked at someone lustfully, never disobeyed his, his parents, always honored them, never coveted what someone else had, never sat there and wondered, when can I have that? When is it my turn to have this new TV? When is it my turn for the new car? He's never sinned. He lived the perfect life and then went to the cross And as he was whipped, as he was being pierced, as he laid hung on that cross, your sins, everything that you ever committed that was wrong, was laid upon his shoulders. And he gave his life as a sacrifice to the elect, to all those who would put their trust in him. And so he died. But he didn't just die. He rose again three days later. And by doing so now, in Jesus Christ, we have this opportunity of eternal life. If we just simply confess our sins and repent, turn from them and put our trust in the saving work of Christ, you can be at peace with God today. 1 John 1.9 says that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, our, all unrighteousness. And all you have to do is just put your trust in Jesus Christ and his work and his atoning work on the cross. And if you haven't done that, I would ask, please talk to me. Reach out to me after the service. My phone number, my email is in the bulletin. You can find it on the website. Reach out. I would love to go out to breakfast, lunch, whatever it may be, just to have that conversation with you on what it means to put your trust in Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Now, to the believers here who are sitting, simple question is, in what ways are you like the Pharisees? In what ways are you like the Pharisees? Are are you holding on to the old things in life that you think bring you life, that you think make your life a little better, but we're really called to give it up? To paraphrase R. Kent Hughes, he says, we have to allow Christ to modify all areas in our lives, or we too will be ripped and burst. What are you holding on to that you're not willing to give up? What are you holding on to that perhaps is keeping you from joining in fellowship with believers? What are you holding on to that perhaps is keeping you from fully committing to being a member at a church? The Pharisees oftentimes drew lines where they weren't needed. Are we doing the same thing? Are we letting our personal preference take precedent over what Jesus Christ has done?
Understand, he's come to give us new life, to regenerate us, not to improve us, but to make us new. That is why Jesus came. So what are you holding on to that's keeping you from experiencing that mercy each and every morning? Ask yourself that and pray and repent and turn from God and join in fellowship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we thank you for this new way of life that your son brings. That we have this opportunity to just come before you each and every morning and pray and repent and turn from our sins and know because of what Christ has done that we are forgiven. Lord, as we go about the rest of this day, as we take time to to see and evaluate our lives, to see where perhaps we're falling short, where we are more like the Pharisees than we are as free Christians in Christ, may you reveal those, those, those areas to us May we turn to you, not to our own understanding, not to our own idea of what it means to be a Christian, but turn to you and give our life fully to you, not hold on to anything, Father. Help us to embrace the new that you have brought. Lord, as we go about the rest of this day, as we go home, keep us safe on the roads, as we spend time with family and friends, Help us to be reminded of your mercy and grace over our lives, Father. We pray all this in your son's beautiful name. And his people said, amen. Deeper, more sacred communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ than the Lord's table. This is why only those who are his disciples are invited to partake. We share the bread and the cup with our brothers and sisters in Christ in remembrance of the sacrifice that he made to purchase 